For those of you who are at the Bowker Lecture, good work. Our lecture next Monday night at 6 o'clock or thereabouts is George Sullivan, who is the Assistant Director for Archives at the Center for the History of Chemistry, which operates out of the University of Pennsylvania's Van Pelt Library. His uh, lecture will concern digging in the dumpster and other cautionary tales of modern manuscript collecting. Our lecture this evening needs very little introduction indeed to this audience, and you just heard it before to its great profit. He's Alexander Wilson, the Director General of the British Library Reference Division, and he's talking this evening toward a universal library her books. It's a great pleasure indeed to have you here as always. Thank you very much indeed. And uh, like Terry, I'm both grateful and amazed at the logistic ability quite a few of us to get here in this time to want to come at all. My offered title actually was Towards the Great Universal Libraries, Capital Initials of Rare Books. And Terry, with his tactful a sense of propriety has edited out the great. I was trying, by having great in, to do two things. Uh, on the one hand, to uh, make a bow towards Gessner and all the great bibliographers who have sought that one day humankind should be able to know about all the books there are anywhere. And on the other hand, I was being a little impish about the desirability of it. For those of us who were at the lecture early this afternoon and heard Dr. Steiner talking about the way that uh, pieces of work these days are um, appended with enormous bibliographies culled from online searches and the like, the which very few can have been read by the writer, let alone be read by his tutors and examiners. You'll know what I mean about great universal library. But to know of all the books that exist is, I believe, now within the bounds of possibility in our field of the rare book, the hand-printed book, provided that one accepts the imperfections and dangers of aggregation and cross-referral between a multitude of different catalogues and bibliographies and standards. As an administrator, I would regard it as a great achievement if computers and telecommunications together could bring retrospective bibliography and library catalogues together to give us an 80% result. In less fanciful terms than my title, I want to consider the application to the rare books field of the post-World War II concepts uh, promoted by UNESCO, UNESCO and IFLA, the International Federation of Library Associations, which uh, have, as it were, three pillars to the temple, UBC, Universal Bibliographic Control, UAP, Universal Availability of Publications, and more recently, although without its trilogy of initials, the Program for Preservation of Library Materials, which have been developed by international library organizations with a strong push from this country and from my own country. Rare books for my purpose are regarded as publications of Western Europe and North America up to about 1850. And I only touch on that aspect of retrospective universal bibliographic control.
control RUDC, which is um, the bibliographic control of the output of countries with a more recent beginning in publishing. UBC was designed to provide a sound basis for bibliography, to enable derived cataloging to be done, and to facilitate selection. Each country should be responsible for describing the current output of its publishers according to standard bibliographic conventions and machine-readable codes. Having regard to the political nature of the sponsors, UNESCO and IFLA, each nation-state had to be regarded as bibliographically self-sufficient. So far as the Commonwealth is concerned, one must pay tribute to this ideal in having generated a good deal of product. In 1960, there were three national bibliographies alive and well in the Commonwealth, and in 1975, there were 20. But in very many countries, there is no organized book trade or national library capable of capturing and describing books to those international standards. And the reality is that a wider coverage of the output of many developing countries is to be found in the major libraries of North America and Western Europe. Even among the developed countries, the idea of creating records, a book once published is once described for the common pool, has been frustrated by our adoption of varieties, not only varieties of the bibliographic standard, ISBD, but varieties of the machine-readable code, MARC, so that you've got LC MARC and UK MARC and German MARC and goodness knows what. And at the moment, uh, a UNIMARC is being developed at the Deutsche Bibliothek at Frankfurt. UAP followed UBC when Donald Urquhart, then head of the lending division of the British Library, pointed out that it was not much good knowing what was published unless there could be access to it. This was in his context as a specialist in scientific and technical documentation. And he really meant interlibrary loan and the delivery of surrogate documents in the form of photocopies, a remote service rather than the availability in research libraries for reference. Urquhart's successor, Maurice Lyne, has pursued the UAP idea with admirable energy and to great effect, so far as modern scientific publications are concerned. But UAP has not concerned itself much about the role of the research library, either the general research library or the specialist one, and with the archival collections, or on the adverse effects for future availability of publications of an excessive amount of interlibrary lending. But this debate is now engaged. I mentioned that IFLA, it's for about 10 years now, has been concerning itself not just with the current bibliographic output, but with retrospective uh, bibliographic control. This can, of course, be, in the countries with an older tradition, an effort to push back the national bibliography to some period in the 18th or 19th century, or back to the 15th century. And I'm not much concerned with, with the form. More concerned with the contribution to the early history of printing itself in one country, or again, a census of early publications uh, from any source held in a modern country. Donald Mackenzie in New Zealand has done pioneer work on the proto-bibliography of that country, which began in the late 19th century. 
and which will be the subject of the first series of Knizzi lectures at the British Library later this year. That's a fascinating topic, but not the one that I choose to deal with, which is tributaries to the great universal library of rare books, coming from such a variety of sources as the National Union Catalogue, the NUC in this country, or the conversion of the general catalogues of great libraries, like Remark at the Library of Congress, or the GK3, the conversion of the general catalogue of the British Library, and other cataloging sources. RUBC, of course, holds its umbrella over period and or language-based bibliographies and censuses, which may be national or international in scope. As this movement gathers pace and takes advantage of the support of automation, the costs go up, the organizing skills and the networks of cooperation that libraries have become more and more relevant, and there's a tendency for the task to shift from the bibliographers, from the scholars as such, towards either towards national libraries or great research libraries or cooperatives of libraries, or at least to accept public funding, state funding, and to take over this task. It's interesting, for example, that STC uh, in, 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 in Britain was published by the Bibliographic Society, whereas ESTC has had millions of dollars put into it, both from the British National Library and from institutional and from foundation funding in, in North America. It just shows the sheer scale of, of the problem. Dr. Robin Alston, who many of you will know as editor-in-chief of the 18th century short title catalogue, ESTC, has, I believe, done a great service to our cause tonight by inspiring many of the new or redesigned bibliographic projects on which my optimism about a universal library relies. One can see that the technology that he has explored is bringing together the requirements of the enumerative bibliographer and the library cataloger in this field. In modifying the code ISBDA, Bibliographic Description Antiquarian, it is of IFLA, to bend it slightly towards the standards of the old STC and Wing, to which ESTC is the chronological successor, Robin has stated criteria for machine-readable cataloging of older books. He has also pointed, I think, to the compromises that will have to be made by 80% achievement. One, he says, accurate transcription of as much of the title as necessary. Two, capturing the nuance of imprint. Three, describing the bibliographical format adequately. Four, having a flexible approach to annotation. I think that's a very important point when one comes to talk to scholars exploiting this kind of record. Five, having a unique identifier like an ISBN. And lastly, having an apparatus to support an arrangement of a body of records in a correct and structural order. Alston sees as a distinctive feature of a machine-readable file the capability to produce on demand printed lists of retrospectively converted records from a wide variety of collections. Another compromise which have the authority and integrity of a conventionally produced bibliography or catalog. Now, there is a cost to the added value of turning the aggregation 
into something with authority and integrity. And I suggested that some kind of compromises have to be made there. And Austin points out that there is a need to review not just cataloging rules, ISBDA for this new approach, but filing rules as well. ESTC has the ambition, you may remember, of listing all surviving materials published in the English language between 1701 and 1800, or in any language published in a territory at one time in that century, part of the British Empire. ESTC is interrelated with other retrospective projects, such as the North American Imprints Program and the Early Imprints Project in Australasia. The former is both a tributary and a receiver, if you can be the two things with ESTC. It's interactive. EIP in Australia is taking the base file that we've jointly created to be the base file for EIP in Australia. ESTC has two editorial centres, one at the British Library and one at Baton Rouge in the States, where the North American edit editor, Dr. Henry Snyder, is based. With about 700 contributing institutions in a number of countries and an anticipated five to 600,000 records in the eventual file, it's the greatest endeavour in RUBC to date, and I say to date. From the English point of view, ESTC does not quite close the gap with our first publishing trade list, the English catalogue of books, which started in 1835, and therefore one notes with interest the emergence of the NSTC, the 19th century STC. Um, this makes further compromises. ESTC started by a recataloguing from the books of the 140,000 or more items in the British Library collection. That's the base file. That's something to build on. NSTC is a compilation, initially, of the catalogues of the British Library and several other great libraries in the United Kingdom, with, by exception, access to the shelves of Cambridge University Library for editorial queries. I'll keep bringing up these points, ladies and gentlemen, not as criticism, but to make my point that if we want to know about all of us, there's a compromise. And I, I, it's really a question. I have no answers as to what is an, an adequate standard and what can we afford. I believe we've found it with the STC. But I'm creeping out of the period of the hand-produced book. So let us return to the 15th century. Here, the applicability of machine reading, readable unit cataloging has many advantages as a sort of index of direction. The number of potential inclusions is finite, unfortunately probably shrinking, and mostly located in established collections although new examples are constantly occurring. For example, Dr. Dennis Rhodes, one of my colleagues, found 80 incunables in one small public library in Britain and seven in the unlikely situation of the Library of the Institution of Electrical Engineers. The field has been well worked over by bibliographers, nevertheless. Standard descriptions, acceptable descriptions, are often in print, even if it is a characteristic of such works to be incomplete after many years. And this is another point about compromise. No compromise, no finish is almost what one could say as a, as a, as a skeptic. The most familiar instance being the great Gesamte catalogue, the Wiegendrucke, which uh, has got up to letter F after about 18 years. Enter my joy as a library administrator, ISTC, the Incunables Cunabula STC. 
devised and edited by Dr. Lotta Hellinger at the British Library, ISTC is an index of indexes, a census of censuses, a key to the great universal library for its period. It is also a workbook as it gets over the difficulty of an absolute and final description by giving an, a, an accepted description and then giving references to the literature. So, if Wilson wrote the entry and Bellinger doesn't agree with it, you get a reference to Bellinger's article and both are happy, except it should have been Bellinger's entry and Wilson's reference. Never will be one, Terry, so we need to In a very short time, ISTC has listed some 13,000 <coughs> titles, editions, perhaps a third of all the incunables thought to exist. How did it do this? Not by having the sort of team ESTC had. They had about 15 or more people working centrally in Britain alone, plus the team in the States, plus the team in the libraries. No, the part-time of Dr. Hellinger and one part-time assistant loading in Dr. Goff's third census of Incunabula in North America, and here's another Anglo-American partnership, and adding to that our own records in the British Library, the Italian Indici Generale, and material from the Dutch, uh, uh, and so forth. So, what she's essentially doing, as I say, is compiling an index of indexes, censuses. And I must pay tribute here to the Bibliographical Society of America, who so graciously gave permission uh, as Dr. Goff himself is delighted to do. I mean, it's sad that in a way um, fitting such a great man, he died in London whilst coming to see his apartment. So it was, you know, going. And Dr. Paul Needham is Dr. Hellinger's associate from the American side on the project. And I understand that Paul will use ISTC as a means of, of updating Goff. The file grows rapidly. And we hope that by about 1987 or 1988, it might have reached some degree of completeness and will, of course, unlike ESTC, be much more heavily weighted towards continental Europe as it develops. We've provided the file as it is now to our German colleagues in Munich, and we're very hopeful that we shall have German collaboration. Our French colleagues are interested. It seems every prospect of this simple, but I believe effective tool being 80% up and working within a very few years. Nor do I want to give the impression that the editors of the Gazelle catalogue are unhappy about this. In a sense, it's a precursor for it. And Dr. Husmer Altman, the editor from Berlin, was at a colloquium we held recently to explore what ISTC, in a sense, to launch it, although it had been accumulating for a while, to launch it as a public online file and to um, receive the views of art historians and bibliographers upon what it might do for them. And I'll have something more to say about that shortly. Well, Dr. Altman was delighted to find what was going on. Um, when I tell you that ESTC, in my opinion, will have cost its Anglo-American partners about £4 million when it officially closes, it will never really close, but when the teams uh, you know, come down to a small maintenance team in March of 89, ISTC will take seven years and a tiny fraction of that amount. Who will maintain such files after their official closing dates is another problem. As you know, STC and Wing are updated in this country at Harvard and Yale respectively. Personally, I would hope, although I shall long be gone, 
that the British Library could continue to edit ISTC on behalf of the world community. The British Museum Library, now the British Library Reference Division, and with other things, has a strong track record in retrospect of universal theory. Sean, as I think you'll agree, beginning with George Bullen's STC in 1884. Many of the influences of ESTC, ISTC started on the back of it quietly without telling me, just working on the file, adding it in there, seeing how it would work, and then when it got like a cuckoo in the nest, I had to say, yes, okay, give it its own file. Sounds like a great idea. And uh, national and period bibliography, some in progress, some directly derived from ESTC and linked to it. In our own case in the British Library, I've mentioned ISTC quite differently. There's a project called SABREM, a retrospective bibliography for Asia and South Asia and Burma, which is using the ESTC bibliotechnology, but of course is dealing with a very different problem. Colleagues from France, West Germany, South Africa, this country, Canada, China and Japan have been to study and work on the ESTC team at the British Library. And I could give you a number of examples, not out of any kind of boastfulness, but that this seems to be the way ahead. This seems to be the cost-effective way towards the great universal library of books. The 16th century German bibliography is now well in hand. An important French development is the bibliography of 16th century printing in Rouen, IRHT. And the Italians, I understand, are working on the 16th century in machine-readable form, their Catalogo Unico, having reached letter C in public. ISTC has been given the blessing of European incunabulists. Um, but one thing that came out at the colloquium is how much more scholars expect. In the one sense, they're amazed to find what drudgery a well-tagged um, um, uh, computer file can relieve them of. And on the other hand, they want copy-specific information of a kind which would be totally impossible to enter in. I'll say something more about this later. It's another link that has to be made. But you may be saying, perhaps by now the drift of my arguments is to throw ESDC, ISDC, and all the others into one macro gesture in machine-readable form and get a real Bibliotheca Universalis Automatonis or whatever, but not so. <laughs> Go to page four, Linking up machine-readable catalogues on a grand scale is the alternative, which I believe is going to happen. Just as the enthusiasm for um, current bibliography, each country producing an absolutely standard record that each machine would recognize, is in fact compartmentalized, and we're moving towards the linked systems project, where in fact you'll be able, they won't need to be absolutely the same, one will be able to walk from one door into another door as one goes through the bibliographies in the catalogue hall. So I believe will be the solution in our case. The recent conferences at Stanford and in Luxembourg of American and North American and European research librarians both showed the desire to share Western resources in this and other ways. The proposal for a European Council of Research Libraries and the example of your CLR 
is intended to promote both binational and multinational cooperation in our bibliographically rich and complex continent. Not to impose a grand design, but to recognize diversity and encourage cooperation. Transcontinentally, we shall soon have a link between the British Library's Blaze system and Arvin in this country. The British Library and the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris are now in active cooperation and they will begin with a very similar thing, a link and the common use of catalogue records. We're also talking to the Deutsche Forschungsgemeinschaft and to other countries. A minimum compatibility of bibliographic records is a prerequisite of these uh, developments. It is this prospect that causes one to hope for a solution to the problems of the descriptive bibliographer. When we held the colloquium, which I mentioned once or twice, and had this disappointment, I was left puzzling about the solution to it, but not much, no, in fact, almost immediately afterwards, I went to the West Coast, California, and one of the guests, one of the delegates to the colloquium, Professor Jerry Murphy at UC Davis kindly invited me over for a day and I found that he and his colleagues, the subject is rhetoric, the School of Rhetoric as you may know, they built a microcomputer database called Project Rhetor on which enriched descriptions of all the works traced from library catalogues and bibliographies in his years of study can be manipulated in all kinds of ways <coughs> of special interest to that limited group of people. Now the contribution of the ISTC to this was that in a 15 minute search of the file, which remember is only one third complete, using all the terms that one could think might occur in the title page of, in the title of a work on rhetoric, something like 80% of what Dr. Murphy had found by conscientiously reading through the great catalogues of the main European libraries turned up in 15 minutes. And I can think of another example, that another 10-minute search in this term from ESTC produced for someone working on the uh, extent of publication by subscription in the 18th century, it produced nearly all that he'd got in years and years of so on the one hand, there's an enormous gain for scholars. On the other hand, it's not going to do their thinking, their enriching for them. Turning to universal availability of publications, and I must hurry on because I'm very conscious that uh, we've had the menu the wrong way around this evening. Um, I should first arouse your attention by telling you that our lending division at the British Library has a sizable business in holding and lending all the books. My distinguished colleague, Maurice Lyon, points out that not all old books are rare, or vice versa, and that there are many thousands of requests per year on them uh, to borrow pre-1850 books, and as he says, this is probably an underestimated demand because scholars do not imagine that an interlibrary lending service would be available for early books. I should point out that the stock there has been acquired by discard from other libraries over a number of years, and that the reference division has had a pick up them. Nevertheless, to those who are aware that no two copies of a hand-printed book are exactly the same, and therefore all are unique and rare, such a philosophy may sound shocking. There are two fairly recent articles in our journal, the ILL and Document, 
view by Morris and myself, which, although not designed as, as thesis and antithesis, set out the pros and cons of this particular matter. In the article I wrote, which discusses the place of the research library in universal availability of publications, philosophy and practice, there's a good deal about the need to buffer rare books, even from direct consultation in the reading rooms of research libraries, by the provision of surrogates. One should be realistic about the wear and tear on rare books in European research libraries. My own library alone has about a quarter of a million pre-1850 books awaiting conservation treatments. And even though we've built up what's undoubtedly the world's largest conservation facility, costing over three and a half million pounds per annum, it's something like a 30 or 40 year task if there were no more coming along behind. Bearing in mind that our troubles derive from the great Panizzi's achievement, first in publishing the first great general library catalogues, a number of specialist catalogues, and then his tradition of liberal access facilities, I am in my weaker moments tempted to paraphrase the saying, happy the library that has no published catalogues. <laughs> Doctor, so that's another bit of mockery about the great universal libraries. ESTC had to be rapidly followed by a major microfilming project in the text, so our books would have been, in all of our libraries, would rapidly have been um, damaged. Dr. Kalkbus, the director of the uh, Bavarian State Library, in a lecture given at a seminar to inaugurate the new Royal Library at The Hague, had much to say about the problems of UAP and early books. You're all, I'm sure, very well aware that the Germans, for almost the whole of this century, have had a system of funding libraries to be specialist sources, two levels of specialization, and the consequence, the obligation is to lend the material. And they built up a, an interlending system for all the books on a substantial scale. Well, Dr. Kalkwasser and Dr. Bernhard Fabian, who did a two-year study of this system, have both been critical of this interlending system. Kalkwasser calls it by a sort of egalitarian provincialism, that scholars should think that wherever they are, the books must come to them the wandering scholar being, as it were, obsolete. He has to mail books of all degrees of rarity and importance all over the country. And I wonder in my more doubting moments whether the networking philosophy in American research libraries may lead to similar problems in the future. Those seem to me we're going to rely on one another implies we're going to support one another and if we're not going to support one another physically very much, and it costs an awful lot of work to set up the organization, so presumably we are going to support one another quite a lot, and that's what happened in Germany. I'm probably quite wrong, but it's worth thinking about Fabian's solution, which I'll come to in a moment. Dr. Kalkwasser is interesting in comparing the European and North American situation. Because our European collections were mainly assembled, <coughs> I've got naturally down here, but that begs an awful lot of questions <laughs> about war and pillage and conquest and, and rich countries and aristocrats. Na naturally, over many years, as it were, they certainly were acquired over a long time by a lot of people. And they exist in huge numbers. They're often less well cared for than the same books in American rare book libraries. The latter have usually been acquired at what was obviously great expense by benefactors. And the funds have been available at the same time 
for their conservation and to provide them with what is often, certainly by European standards, a luxurious environment. Of course, in our great general libraries, like the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris, the Bayerische Staatsbibliothek and the British Library, our collections are assemblies of collections, going back to the beginning of the printed and written records. And although none of us would claim that we have adequate resources to overtake the arrears of the past, and in the foreseeable future, I've already made my confession to you, at least we are all professionally managed and have set up capacity to tackle the job. Contrast the position in fossilized working libraries, such as those of cathedrals, city guilds, institutes of various kinds, and in noble houses, and you see the European problem. Dennis Rhodes, in that study I mentioned, found many, many rare books that people weren't even aware they had. They are not particularly relevant to what they're doing now. I don't criticize the people, it's just part of the problem. A theoretical solution for this is to sweep up collections which are no longer appropriate to the working life of an institution into the National Library or other great research library. Well, this might have been done in Bavaria, as it was, on the suppression of the monasteries, but I don't think many of us, including Bavaria, are now living in a society where state confiscation is looked on as a feasible option. One little grace in the statute which set up the British Library Section 13B, which enables us to support. It's funny how people can smack their lips at something as boring as that. You say 13B to a British research library, and she'll say, Ooh, lovely. I, I love it. <laughs> because it means money. Which enables us to support appropriate activities in other libraries and archives. Judicious grants have been given over the past 11 years to support the national patrimony of rare books in all kinds of institutions, usually for cataloging them and incidentally adding them to the tributary stream, or conserving them, and always with a condition of public access thereafter. So in a way, they were doing unto others as it's done unto others. <laughs> Our first chairman, Lord Eccles, wisely insisted that we should not lay down rigid rules for grants in the first instance, but by a very British process of case law, we have arrived at some lines of policy. A good example is a series of grants to enable the completion of the cataloging of individual cathedral libraries, which completed a very old project, um, at least for British materials, uh, uh, the first of two volumes having recently been published with the British, by the British Library, jointly with the Bibliographical Society, the original sponsor. This is another point. It's just not only that one was aiming at an unachievable standard with these great long works, there just wasn't the support. You've got to move on to public funding or endowment funding, and they want you to use methods that are cost-effective and terminal Tribute should be paid to the Pilgrim Trust, whose funds supported that project for most of its existence. But the interesting thing is that British Library money was used to enable Dr. David Shaw, the University Canterbury to mount the records in a marked format. And so we really have another example of ESTC. It's a computer-assisted STC. And this is really a computer a supplement to STC and WIC, to which it refers. A second projected volume will contain continental entries. Amusingly, the editor instances the most common titles as medieval bestsellers. And you may like to learn just a few of the items at the top of the Renaissance and Baroque charts. Not really 
And top of the tree, by a long while, by a narrow head, was uh, St. John Chrysostom's Opera Graeca, 1613, of which there are 21 copies, and I understand it's still the best edition. Then um, there were several other religious works, um, but one I enjoy is down about number nine is Richard Montague's diatribe upon the first part of the late history of tithes, 17 copies. <laughs> and number 11, the last he lists, is Richard Cousins, an apology for sundry proceedings, which I felt like making many times. So. <laughs> it's interesting, the catalogue concludes with a plea about access and please be reasonable and we haven't got the start and all the rest. But access for bona fide scholars is a condition of all of our grants. For those of you who, of us, let me be honest, I, I rule out ILL as a means of access to early books, else I wouldn't get out of here alive. Um, better bibliographic control, systematic efforts to improve public access, and the provision of surrogates on a large scale are the practical steps towards universal publication. In other words, the travelling scholar has a future which will be comforting to many of my scholarly acquaintances. I was relating with something like crocodile tears, I suppose, to a distinguished musicologist that the treasury in our country had made it a condition of our acquiring certain Benjamin Britten manuscripts in relief of tax, that after we catalogued them and conserved them, they should be deposited at the Britten Peers Centre for Advanced Music Studies at Aldborough on the breezy Suffolk coast. I don't mind, he replied, there are worse places to be in the summertime than Aldborough. <laughs> To the administrator of, large, of a large rare book collection, the most expensive consequence of participation in union projects of this kind is the increased wear and tear on scarce items. Experience, as I've said, shows that union catalogues lead to excessive demand on those libraries which hold the best collections and offer the most efficient access. And this is as true of current materials, as many of you will know, as it is of old materials. It may well be more cost-effective for a research worker to travel thousands of miles to a one-stop service in London, Paris, or this way to Los Angeles, than to visit a number of institutions in his or her own country. And a smaller, a micro problem of that uh, is that uh, many of us list editions in chronological order under titles, with the result that people always request and wear out the first edition. Now the Bodleian learned this long ago, and they're always telling me they list the editions the other way around, which is clever, but it's a bit late to change our catalogue. Excessive ILL demand is often countered by imposing charges for borrowing, and I must tell you that at this time, the British Library Board are reviewing their policy overall, including whether to continue free access, a tradition that goes back to the middle of the 18th century, to our reading room. Without expressing a personal view on this important issue, it is fair to point out that we have the most international clientele. The proportion of overseas users is 30% and rising, and this could be an embarrassment if we continue to offer free use to non-taxpayers when my division alone costs the British taxpayer about £28 million pounds a year, apart from the million and a half of the rates now on one well-known American scholar wrote to me that there are more people using rare books in our North Library reading room, certainly in some occasion, on any day, than in all the reading rooms of rare book libraries in this country put together. And even if he was flattering and exaggerating to pay a compliment, 
I've seen enough to know it's substantially true, and it's almost as embarrassing as it is a source of time. So now we're touching on the third pillar of the temple, UBC, UAP, and now preservation. The conservation equivalent of the great universal library was a proposal in this country in the mid-1960s to identify the national copy of every significant title and edition and either whisk it away to a great deep freeze or ensure that the proud possessor treated it fully and kept it that way. It was a marvelous idea, but even in this country of idealism and know-how, it was utopian, it was unachievable. And we're back to taking our local decisions with our own money, but cooperating as far as we can. At least we should have the knowledge of what one another is doing, and we should share knowledge of techniques and philosophies, of whether you do less and less to more and more, for instance, and to seek foundation money to lubricate cooperation, something less difficult in this continent than it is in ours. As with UAP in the rare books field, the best means towards economic use of the nation's preservation resources is coming back to bibliographic control in the form of such tools as the National Register of Microform Masters, which you have in this country, which we are proposing to set up, having established a National Preservation Office in Britain last year. Already we've something of this sort in the newspaper field. Once again, though, the storyline comes through that Anglo-American cooperation will benefit us mutually, and one purpose of the Blaze Arlen Link is to enable preservation cooperation. You'll be aware that our straight-out period here, since the threat of acid paper is mainly, overwhelmingly, to late 19th century and 20th century publications, and that gives them the lead in the creation of surrogates. But I would like to tell you that the British Library is already indirectly participating in the American heritage effort through the American Trust for the British Library, which has already raised $1.6 million by through generous donations. And nearly all of this is going on original, first-time microfilming of what's already scarce American material, where we get a print and the holding library gets a negative for the benefit of others. And I'd like to thank the New York Public Library, which is our first helper, and Harvard, Library of Congress for supporting us in this work. Well, thank you very much indeed for inviting me on this second occasion to take part in your distinguished series. Speakers, the bar can be found in room 502 Butler. Thank you. Thank you.